Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Shawinigans! <laughs> Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine. One bottle at a time, one show tune at a time. I'm Drea, and I love a show tune. And I'm Jules, and you can always catch me dancing to a good beat wherever I am. It's time for our reoccurring episode, Cheers and Jeers. So let's dive into what we're drinking to this episode. So my cheers goes to Jules. Jules, thank you for making this episode happen despite being across the pond uh, and dealing with COVID and all of that hot messery. You are fantastic and I appreciate you and our listeners appreciate you too because that's how this episode is happening. So thank you. My jeers goes to me for thinking that I had mastered podcast editing, because clearly I have not. <laughs> so a note to our listeners for this episode, there, there, might, there might be a few weird things. Um, just, you know, trying to, trying to get my sea legs, trying to figure things out. And uh, was really proud of myself and maybe shouldn't have been quite so proud but we will get there so thank you for your patience but yes cheers to me so jules uh now that you know the extent of my technology challenges what are your cheers and jeers this week this week's cheers and jeers um for me is a little bit challenging um my cheers definitely goes out to my friends, Michelle and Scott, for holding down the fort for two weeks um, while I was at a cousin's wedding in Scotland. And by holding down the fort, I mean they were watching my two dogs plus my foster dog plus their dog, Fonzie. Um, and they did an awesome job. And I'm just so thankful to have them and also a lot of other friends who were willing to kind of step in when things kind of went down the tubes which leads me to my jeers. My jeers this week goes out to COVID and the CDC's testing requirement for returning back to the United States of the Americas. Um, my trip has been longer than anticipated due to catching COVID and not being able to test negative and fly home. So hopefully by the time this episode airs, I will be on my way back to San Diego from rainy Scotland. So, jeers to that. So, for our Schweinigans, this episode, uh, we thought it would be fun to do a little quiz since we are featuring a Syrah today on the show. And the quiz questions that we have here are adapted from a Wine Spectator online article called Syrah Around the World. So if you are interested in learning more about Syrah from actual experts, you can go check out 
uh, their article and they have some great resources available on their website. So Jules and I are going to go back and forth a little bit and see what our actual knowledge of Syrah is. Oh boy. Also, some of the other questions on this wine quiz came from a winefolly.com. Deep dive into the secrets of Syrah wine. So you can check out winefolly.com for more information about wine in general and Syrah. Okay, Drea. Yes. In what year was Syrah found to be the offspring of two obscure grapes? (laughs) Can I phone a friend? No. I'm going to go. The options are. Okay. 1980. 1977 or 1999. Okay, so knowing what I know about Syrah and viticultural history and its popularity as a wine, I'm going to say 1977. Really? In 1999, Syrah was found to be the offspring of two obscure grapes from the southeastern region of France, the Dureza grape and the Mondus Blanche grape. What the hell, science? Like, what have you been doing? I'm. T- I, I don't make. I don't. I don't create the answer. Oh, fine, whatever. This fine. is gonna be just like that stupid BuzzFeed quiz I took that time. It told me I was a fucking Merlot. <laughs> Merlot. <laughs> Ugh, it's gonna haunt me forever. All right. Okay. So here's one for you. Which of the following styles of wine is not made from Syrah grapes? Fortified wines, sparkling wines, ice wines, or all of these are made from Syrah grapes. My initial thought would be ice wine. Why? Because I think of it as like a really sweet white wine. Fair, fair, fair. Actually, all of these can be made from Syrah grapes. <sighs> it's like one of those damn Scantron tests. <laughs> where I'm like, is it C or D bubble? C maybe, or D? Maybe we should just go back to playing Mad Libs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Drea. Yes. Syrah goes by more than one name. The Chileans bottle the wine as A, Syrah, B, Sera, C, Cerveza, or D, Chorizo. Now, while my idiotic <laughs> instinct I feel is, like to, this is... <laughs> is to automatically go with Chorizo, because that <laughs> should be the answer to all things, um, I think this is a trick question, and I'm going to go with Syrah. I You're correct. Like... The answer is Syrah. I would have personally gone with Sarah, S-E-R-A. All right. So this this one's a little hard and I'll apologize in advance. <laughs> but it's Great. pretty it's pretty cool. It's a good bit of history here. So okay. now Sarah and Shiraz. 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 Are actually the same wine, right? right? But in Australia, they call it Shiraz. So what is the explanation? For the Australian rendering of Syrah as Shiraz. So A, actually Syrah is a French bastardization of Shiraz, which was named for the Persian city. B, the European Union designated Syrah as a protected grape word and forbid the use of it outside of France, similar to like with champagne, right? Wouldn't put it past them. C, the Australian alphabet does not have the letter Y. Good day, mate. <laughs> I feel like Wine Spectator was like, we got to throw them a bone somewhere. <laughs> D, the viticultural pioneer who brought the grape to Australia knew it as Sikras or Siras, and the Australian dialect took it from there. I want to go with D because that sounds really cool, but I think it might be. Always trust your instincts. It is, in fact, D. Okay. Yeah. 
So a little bit of linguistic history there, Love too. It. This one's easy, I think. You like to drink. All right. In California, Syrah excels in which appellation? A, the Edna Valley. B, the Sierra Foothills. C, Napa Valley. D, all of the above. I think it's D, all. Absolutely. And I'm not going to tell you why, because we'll talk about when we get into the deep dive of the grape here. I think I might know. It has something to do with having a nice view. <laughs> Is that what it is? I think. Keeps them happy. <laughs> what is the relationship of the grape Syrah to my nemesis, Petite Syrah? A, they are the same grape. B, Syrah is a parent of Petite Syrah. C, Petite Syrah is an albino mutation of Syrah. <laughs> D, they are frenemies. I really want this to be like a real Housewives franchise of wine where they're frenemies. But again, my belief in science, although that's already like done me wrong once this afternoon, uh, would be B. Syrah is a parent of Tite Syrah. That is correct. Look at that. Hopefully I don't have an allergic reaction to the wine that we're going to. You picked this wine for today. I know I picked this wine, but now I'm kind of maybe psychologically now I'm going to be allergic to it because I know that they're related because I didn't think they were. <sighs> Let's well, get the Benadryl. There's that. I'm going to ask you the last question. Fine. This is a true or false because I had to throw a little wrench and monkey wrench into the situation. It is common practice for winemakers to cold soak Syrah grapes for days or even weeks. I mean, my back needs a cold soak right now, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say like before I need more information. So I'm going to say no. So you're going to say it's false. False. Yes. False. It is true. Oh, well, I want to know more about this. Because Syrah wines have such thick skins and high tannins, it's common It's common practice for winemakers to cold soak the Syrah grapes for days because cold soaking or extended maceration increases the color and fruitiness in a wine while also reducing the harsh tannin and herbation. Ooh, okay. So there you go. Look at that. We're learning new stuff all the time. Syrah 101 with Drea and Jules. Yeah. Our bottle that we are drinking for this episode is a Jules Select Reserve pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from, from my wine cellar. From your wine cellar. And my understanding is this is one of your favorite producers' favorite bottles. So tell us a little bit about what we're drinking today. Yeah, so 16600 is an amazing um, winery that's up in Sonoma, Sonoma County. And we're drinking the 2017 Syrah. The vineyard is, well, it's called Mountains of Sonoma because it comes from two different vineyards. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, The ABV on this wine is 14.8. So it packs a little bit of a punch. And this winery is really well known for producing all of their wines organically. And they have been doing that for many, many years. The winemaker, Phil Katuri, has been a pioneer in organic farming up in in the Sonoma Valley area for for decades. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that from Drea. You know, I'm excited about this bottle because as some of our repeat listeners know, I don't drink a ton of Sonoma Napa wines. I've really personally have shied away from them. One, I just don't, don't get up there enough to taste. It's just gotten so popular and so expensive, frankly. And two, it's hard to find 
producer i mean and don't get me wrong they're doing it there you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna pay the price for it but they're doing it there who are doing this type of of farming sort of low intervention organic really focusing on an eco the ecosystem of the vineyard you just have so many big producers up there so i'm super excited to try this bottle because i'm a 16600 virgin yeah and i mean just in general like the the people that are associated with 16600 like when you go up there to taste are just they're super chill not pretentious everyone's wearing like tie-dye and shorts and they're really really relaxed and it's a it's a really good place to go tasting especially if you feel a little bit intimidated about wine because they just make you feel really comfortable very cool so why don't you tell us a little bit about the varietal that we're tasting today, which is a Syrah. Give us give us some, some background information about this specific grape. Sure. So, you know, we did our little quiz already. So I think we've learned a bit. But let's talk more specifically about the grape because Syrah is really interesting. And I think it's, it's often overlooked, especially by wine drinkers in the States who, you know, tend to edge more towards a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Zinfandel or eh, maybe not a Merlot anymore maybe that's more like 70s 80s style drinking but um certainly like when people think of big bold reds Syrah usually isn't super high on that list and and frankly it should be you know Syrah tends to yield really rich powerful full-bodied red wines is a Rhone style wine so it comes from that region of France and what's interesting about the history of the grape, and we kind of alluded to this in our Schweinigans quiz, is that people, even viticulturists, have really argued what its origins were. If it came from the Greek Isles or if it came from um, which land that's now Iran. But the reality is the grape is, in fact, a native of France. And as you learned in our quiz, um, it is a cross between two different varietals. And this was confirmed by researchers from UC Davis. In 1999. In 1999, that's right, Mm -hmm. who conducted DNA testing on the grape at that time. And for those of you who are interested in wine education, Davis has an amazing program. They do a lot of cool community events. They have a lot of great online resources. I highly recommend checking them out. So let's talk a little bit about how Syrah became kind of the grape it is today. True to its French roots, Syrah found fame in the 18th century in the area that it's from, so southeastern France. Syrah really becomes one of the first single like varietal wines that gets popularized in this region during that time. And so that's something to keep in mind too. And But even today, you know, you see Syrah in a lot of red blends. Um, mm-hmm. It gives it kind of that strong robust, powerful background. Um, and then you get some softer grapes to sort of round it out a little bit at times. But this yeah, the was... Syrah kind of does like the roundhouse kick. Yeah, exactly. It, it like gives you the gut punch yeah. you need yep. to get your wine drinking night started. <laughs> or ended, whatever, whatever. Whatever, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. And the, the reason that you see it both in blends and, you know, as a standalone single varietal wine is the grape itself. So Syrah is a very dark skin, very hearty red grape that's known for withstanding a whole lot of 
uh, abuse, Mm -hmm. especially climate abuse. So when we think about California wines, it really makes sense that Syrah finds a home here, especially in the Napa Sonoma area, and especially in the last 10 years, which has really seen, you know, some pretty heavy drought conditions and very devastating fires. Um, But Syrah is one of those vines that can really withstand a lot. Um, the other thing about them is that they, the grape itself grows in really loose, big bunches. And what that does is it creates minimal opportunity for moisture to collect in there for mil- and then for mildew and fungus to grow. So again, these are super hardy, super robust grapes that can take on a lot of the challenges that come with grape growing. So think about like the complete opposite of a Pinot Noir grape, which is just mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm so delicate. Uh, so let's talk about them, the climate too, because I've already alluded to it a little bit here. Syrah is great, especially in California because of the drought-like conditions in the state that really make it ideal for growing in warmer regions. I'm also starting to see Syrahs pop up in places like... Um, Texas. So they they have quite a few wineries now. Um, New Mexico. If you can believe this shit, Arizona has a winery. I've actually read about the Arizona Wine Trail. There's like... There's silence on the side because I'm just blinking and looking <laughs> at her. It was, in, it was in a Sunset Magazine a couple of years ago, and it was sort of like this explosion of wine in Arizona, and I kind of was the same as you as I was reading. I was like, really? Well, but you know, I sense uh, two girls on a great road, road trip. trip. <laughs> Arizona, here we come. You're Get not ready. ready for this. <laughs> no, they are not. I live there. And let me tell you, they are not <laughs> ready for this. So um, with these dry climates, what it does is it allows for really deep root penetration of the vines. She said I, penetration. I did say penetration. And um, these vines then can thrive incredibly well in under dry irrigation circumstances. So we've talked about dry irrigation quite a few times on the podcast, mostly because I'm obsessed with it and think it's so rad. Uh, but because these grapes don't need a lot of moisture, those rootstocks really sort of dig deep into the soil. So you get vines then that are going to perform really well and produce really great grapes in mineral rich soils like limestone gravel iron and granite so those are the things you're really looking for in soil composition when you're out tasting you see one of those buzzwords you just you just start chugging those things so then when you're tasting and you're being asked like what do you smell uh limestone gravel iron granite (laughs) Well, maybe pick one. Okay. Maybe, maybe pick one. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's not. It, let's oh, not it, wasn't, it wasn't an all of the above. No, it wasn't no, no. D all of the no, above. No, it wasn't it's, D it's all of the above. It's A, B, C, or D. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So what does all this mean for the actual wines, right? So what, typically a Syrah, when you pour it in your glass, is going to have a really deep, rich, almost purpley color to it. It's going to be pretty concentrated in terms of its flavors, as Jules said, it is it is the roundhouse kick. Like it packs a punch. These wines also tend to have a bit higher alcohol content, so high 14s into the 15s. I've even even seen a Syrah at 16, which I was just like, oh dear, this is this is not a day's drinker over here. No. And typical scents and flavors that you're gonna find in most Syrahs are gonna be kind of your dark 
summer fruits. So blackberries, black and red plums, black cherries. And then though you get more of those aromatics. So things like baking spices, earth, chocolate, licorice, pepper, truffles. So there's certainly like an earthy background to Syrahs. And a lot of that has to do with those deep rootstocks that you're going to find in a lot of these vines. I actually think they're great wines. They're underappreciated, despite the fact, though, that they are gaining in popularity, which I love to see. So today, Syrah is ranked as the world's sixth most planted grape. Hmm. And as of 2016, that's the latest one I could find, approximately 35% of all the world's Syrah was found in France, followed by Australia with 20%, and Spain with 10%. So I did think that it was kind of interesting that the U.S. didn't crack the top three in terms of Syrah production because the conditions really do seem pretty ripe for for this type of grape here. But, you know... I think it could also just be timing-wise, right? So the United States is is a baby compared to these other countries Very that true. we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good point. And I will insert one of my fun facts here because it's very appropriate. Um, so Syrah wine regions account for 460,000 acres worldwide. Wow. That's mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah. So the total acreage for Syrah grapes, 460,000 across France, Australia, Spain, Argentina, South Africa, the United States, Italy. Very nice. All right. So it really is a global grape, too, when you think about it. And in the U.S., you know, I know we talked about some of the drier regions, but really Syrah production in the United States began with almost a, you know, kind of cult-like following out west. So think California, Washington, Oregon, which, with the exception of Napa and Sonoma, quite frankly, is kind of an odd place for Syrah that likes warmer dry climates and you get into Oregon and Washington and they're a lot cooler and a lot wetter, right? And I have not had a Syrah from Washington or Oregon. So now I'm like deeply curious here. But as I was mentioning at the top of the podcast, it hasn't seen the same success and popularity here as some of the cool kids like uh, Cabernet and Pinot Noir. But there's still a very core group of dedicated American winemakers who have been working with Syrah since the 70s and have really helped to take root in the American marketplace. And they call themselves, I cannot make this up. It's so great. The Roan Rangers. And I bet Phil's one of them. Oh my gosh. I wonder if Phil is one of them. I bet Phil. I bet Are Phil you a Roan Ranger? I bet he is. And okay. I'm super- I'm, we're going to have to find this <laughs> out. We're going to have to find this out. Stay tuned, everyone. We're going to have to sleuth. <laughs> Jules, I know you have some fun facts, and a couple of them are related to 16600 and Phil the winemaker. So what have you what have you got for us this episode? Okay, so I'm going to start with some fun facts about Syrah in general to add on to all the amazing information that Drea just shared. And then I'll go into a little bit more fun facts about 16600 and um, Phil Couturi and sort of his family. One of the things that I sort of alluded to earlier in the quiz was this idea that wine growers often say that Syrah likes of you. And if you go into wine country and you go to the Syrah vineyards, you'll see that they often have this amazing view. It's like where you'd want to Oh, that's picnic. a real thing. I thought you were just yeah. fucking with me. No, okay. That's a real thing. Because <laughs> so because the best vineyards are usually towards the top of the hills where there's less soil, making the vines produce less, but more concentrated grapes, and then also therefore having the best view. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So wines with a view. Syrah likes a view. I like a view, so... Who doesn't like a view? It's a match made in heaven. 
Another fun fact about the Syrah is that since the, and I, I want to say it was the phylloxera, mm-hmm. yeah, phylloxera plague that ravaged Europe never touched the soils in the Barossa Valley in Australia. That region in particular boasts some of the oldest living vineyards for Syrah grapes. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. That's cool. So I think that's kind of cool. So that's just some fun facts about Syrah in general. But now for some real fun facts about 16600. So 16600, as we've mentioned, is up in Sonoma. They have this amazing 120-year-old house that's just off the Sonoma Square. And that's where you can go and taste all their wines. And it's a proper house. Like you walk in and there's a living room. There's a little side sitting room. They have, due to COVID now, they have sort of like separate areas set up. They have a little tasting area on the porch for two people. But I've tasted inside both the, the few times that I've been up there. And one of the really cool things that you can do when you're tasting the wine is... They have a massive record collection, vinyl vinyl records, and they have record players, and you can just play whatever music you want to you want to listen to while you're tasting the wine. That's um, cool. So it's a super chill, like laid back atmosphere when you're tasting. They're also really well known for being generous with their tastings. So it's just a really I think good experience to go and taste because you actually fully do get to taste the wines. They have really cool artwork on their labels and we'll put we'll put some pictures up on our Instagram so, so that people can see what it looks like. The artwork on the label for pretty much all of their wines has the same label is by Stanley Mouse and the artwork is entitled Left Bank. And Stanley Mouse is a pretty famous rock and roll artist. He did a ton of um, rock and roll record covers. Yeah, he did record covers. In like the 60s and the 70s, um, which really ties in really well with Phil Couture, who is the winemaker at 16600. So he's been in the winemaking industry since the late 70s. And he, like I said, pioneered the organic farming sort of movement up in that area. And he is, he actually manages, so not only does he farm the 16600 vineyards, but he also has a separate company that manages a lot of other vineyards up there. And I actually have another wine club that's up there that I found out the last time I was at 16600, I was mentioning this wine club and Jasmine, the wine club manager said, oh, Phil farms that vineyard. That's amazing. So um, he's really well known in that area. You know, he's been doing this work for a really long time and, and really pushing it. So just a really cool dude overall. Um, like I said, they're always wearing tie-dye, like their their gear. I have one of their t-shirts, it's tie-dye. I need to get in on this tie-dye Kind of action. psychedelic, like writing. Um, they have a really big sort of like relationship to the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, because Phil, apparently, as a young boy, was at the wedding for their publicist or tour manager, um, something like that. So they kind of have, you know, this tie-in with that. A little bit more about the specific Syrah that we're drinking. So we're drinking the 2017 Syrah from the mountains of Sonoma. So this Syrah is co-fermented with Viognier skins, which to me I find really interesting. Yeah. And unusual. And then lastly, the mountains of Sonoma refers to the blending of grapes from two different vineyards up in that area. So one is Sonoma Mountain and the other one is Moon Mountain. So that's what we're going to be drinking today. Awesome. So before we really get into this bottle, I do want to talk a little bit about the region itself. And I think this is going to really contextualize for 
our listeners why what Phil Couture is doing up there is so interesting and has been so revolutionary in so many ways. So Sonoma County is one of California's largest producers of wine and even currently outproduces the Napa Valley. So that's the first thing to think of, right? A lot of your heavy hitters are coming out of Sonoma County and a lot of your big producers and mass producers, you know, think labels that you see kind of cruising down the grocery store aisles or whatever, they're coming out of Sonoma County. The history of the region is really interesting. So grapes were planted in Sonoma County at Fort Ross around 1812 when Padre Jose Altamira planted several thousand grape vines at the Mission San Francisco Solano, which is the last and most northern mission established in California. The mission itself is located in what is now the city of Sonoma in the southern part of Sonoma County. And I know all this because my parents, when I was in college, did a whole road trip down the coast to all the mission. And at the Sonoma one, they went drinking first and apparently that was a mistake oh i was gonna say i thought you were gonna say and that was the best one of all they were very excited about their sonoma mission stop (laughs) cuttings though from the sonoma mission vineyards were carried throughout northern california to start new vineyards so as that area expanded When the gold rush hits, these were the vine stalks that they were taking cuttings from to plant in other places in that northern area of California. You know, there's so much wine heritage coming from that location. And by the time of the annexation of California um, by the United States in 1854, wine grapes were already an established part of agriculture in the region. Region. Okay. So the region really takes off, though, in 1855 with the arrival of a Hungarian viticulturist by the name of Augustin Horosti. And upon his arrival, he purchases a vineyard that was once owned by Marian Guadalupe Vilejo, a California general, and renamed it Buena Vista. Okay, fun little fact that I'm going to insert here. Ooh. So Phil Katuri first started farming organically in 1979 at a vineyard called Dos Limones Vineyard. And that was Sonoma Mountain. And then the other vineyard site that he also farmed was originally part of Harasti's Buena Vista Vineyard. And no. Buena Vista, the Buena Vista Vineyard is the oldest winery in California. Oh, I love this. So, Look at this. This is amazing. We get fun facts inserted into historical facts. Oh, this is like the best. But it's all facts. So good. All right. So in 1861, Hrosti was commissioned by the state of California to go back to Europe to continue his viticultural studies. And then when he returned to the state several years later, he brought more than 100,000 cuttings of premium grape varietals with him. And listen, I'm not even allowed to bring in a ham sandwich when I go abroad. <laughs> and this guy brings in 100,000 cuttings of grape varietals. I would like to declare this the Spanish pelota right? ham. <laughs> Come on. My how times have changed. (laughs) But this 
government sanctioned smuggling. <laughs> yes, thank you. You're Let's call it what it was. <laughs> is actually what helped elevate winemaking in Sonoma and transform the business of wine in the valley. And then by the 1920s, there were over 250 wineries already operating in the county with more than 22,000 acres in production. Now, of course, during Prohibition, boo, <laughs> commercial winemaking does radically decline. And at the repeal of Prohibition in 1933, there were fewer than 50 wineries remaining in Sonoma. But, and even as late as the 1960s, only about 12,000 acres were in production as vineyards for wineries. But as wine consumption in the U.S. began to grow, especially as we get into the 80s and 90s, Sonoma County continued to to regain some of its old glory. And by 1999, they had over... 49,000 acres of vineyards and more than 750 growers. Uh, So that's a ton of growth in a very short period of time. And what was 1999? When we discovered the science of Syrah. Yes. That's right. Two grapes are better than one. So as of 2007, there were over 250 wineries in operation, and over half of those were less than 20 years old, which shows the massive amount of growth that has occurred in that area in recent decades. Today, there are more than 425 wineries operating in Sonoma County. I believe it. Yeah, I mean, we we got work to do. I mean... (laughs) Every time I go up there, I'm like, tip of the iceberg. There's just so, it's, it's yeah, a little going. overwhelming. You really have to have a plan because it really is overwhelming when you just look at the map of how much there is there that you could, that, to explore. Absolutely. And a lot of places that you've never heard of. Right. And you've got your mass producers, but then you have all these, like, the 16600s that are, you know, family owned and smaller production an amazing wine that you just have to go out and be adventurous and curious about. And some of these places may not even have a full tasting room right. operation. they don't. Yeah. yeah. So that's something to keep in mind as well. So tell us a little bit about the area of Sonoma that this wine that we're drinking is coming from. So the AVA of this wine is the Moon Mountain District. And Moon Mountain is a pretty, you know, relatively young wine producing area. It was officially approved by the regulatory board in 2013 as a sub-appellation of the Sonoma Valley ADA. And what's interesting about it is the geographical space that it operates. So it shares its eastern border with the Mount Vidier AVA, which is a sub-appellation of the Napa Valley. So it's right in that in-between sliver space of Sonoma and Napa. Mm. So in some ways, even though a lot of people talk about them in conjunction. They're pretty different. Different soils, depending on what side of like what slope they're on, they have radically different climates at different mm-hmm. times of the year. And when I was reading about the Moon Mountain District, I mean, it really sounds to me like it's it's kind of got the best of both worlds going for it because of how it's situated between these two AVAs. So I think it's pretty cool in terms of how they're using the land up there to farm. And I know for you... That's a huge part of the appeal of this bottle and of Phil Katuri's work. So Jules, what can you tell us about the vineyard and Phil and what you learned on your recent trip up there? The 
Estate Vineyard was established in 1989 on the southern slope of Moon Mountain District, which we just talked a little bit about. And it does have sweeping views of the Sonoma Valley below and the San Francisco Bay and the city skyline in the distance. So it goes right along with this, the Syrah likes a view, right? Grapes with a view. She really does. Mm-hmm. She, I, I like, I like a Syrah. This is why I like her. <laughs> She's she's got good taste. Uh, this specific vineyard is known for its steep and rocky hillside, and it provides optimal conditions for the Syrah vines to thrive. Uh, since it began producing grapes, the vineyard has never used any kind of chemical fertilizer, pesticides, or herbicides, which is really truly in line with how Phil does his farming. And one of the things that I did find out recently about Phil and how he kind of got into the organic and pesticide-free farming was that he was living on a property when he was really a young man and he was kind of in charge of some of the farmland but there was a family living on the property that had young children and he used roundup to kill some weeds oh no and it was either the owner of the property or the father of the of the family basically said i have kids and that stuff is shit so you got to find another way to get rid of the weeds and to farm so interesting that's not using these chemicals. So that's that was kind of his step into how to organically farm without using the shit that we know as Roundup. In addition to the vineyard being mostly dry farmed, which allows the roots to fully take advantage of the rich soil in the area, it also gets a mix of sun and fog that's iconic for the in the Bay Area. If, if anyone's ever been up there, you kind of know that. Sometimes the Golden Gate Bridge disappears <laughs> into nothing and it's kind of like, what's what did, happening? What did Mark Twain say? The coldest winter I ever spent was summer in San Francisco? Probably. Yeah, that's a, That sounds about right. <laughs> so the mixture of the sun and the fog really allows the grapes to develop complex flavors, which I think is something that is fairly common trait of the Syrah, of a Syrah wine. That yeah. it is it is very complex, and that's why it's it's it is big and bold. And especially wines coming out of this region, that you know, all the grapes are benefiting from these massive temperature swings, where you may have blazing hot summers right before harvest, but these vines have also seen very cool, you know, late winter spring evenings that can even get below freezing too. So. Yeah, these grapes see some stuff in addition to the view, obviously. Yeah. So what can you tell us about Phil and his philosophy and sort of how he's grown into it? Yeah. So in addition to, I think, some of the things that we've already talked about with Phil and specifically 16600, he has been working in this industry for decades, you know, close to 50 years. And he's been called everything from a famed organic viticulturalist by The Hollywood Reporter to the ubiquitous wizard of sustainable winemaking by Sonoma Magazine. Um, And that's information that we took directly from the 16600 website. So anybody can read about that. But in reality, he's really been at the forefront of Sonoma Valley's rise to wine glory and has been a leader in sustainable agriculture. Like we said, he's the son of Italian immigrants. He grew up in San Francisco. He got a degree in literature. He grew up, you know, reading a lot of books and listening to The Grateful Dead. But Perhaps one of the most revolutionary moves that he, you know, made as a as a young man was he left the city and moved to Sonoma and began to think of a better way 
to live and to make wine. So that was kind of the beginning of his foray into organic uh, winemaking. He's been known to say that to live off the land, isn't that the hippie's dream? As we've mentioned, Phil does avoid using any kind of synthetic pesticides and herbicides. He doesn't like to use fertilizers, even organic ones, and he prefers cover crops like bell beans instead. On the properties, you'll find beehives and owl boxes and raptor roosts are, will be standard because they help to promote healthy vineyards and help to basically keep pests out and to keep any predators at bay that might be after these very desirable grapes. Desi- the desirable product that's on that's on the land. Well, and what I really appreciate about his approach to farming is that he thinks about the vineyard as an ecosystem, mm-hmm. as its own contained ecosystem. And you you see this a lot in smaller European Farm. So it's very, very prominent, for example, in Spanish wine growing, kind of thinking about that entire system and how it gives and takes from each other and the different pieces. But you don't see it as often in the States. And it was really nice to to read about his philosophy in that way. And I and when I was looking at some research on him, I found this amazing quote where he was explaining how he got into organic gardening when he first graduated from Sonoma State in 1975. And he admits, quote, I wanted to be a hippie. And what did hippies do? All that weird shit. And I was just like, this dude is rad. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I feel like that's still kind of the ethos of when you when you go up there and you visit and you sit with them. So his son, um, Sam Katuri, is, you know, basically running the, the 16600 side of the business while Phil is still out. You know, he's working the land like he's out in the vineyards and doing all the, you know, this organic farming for not only 16600, but other producers as well. And they just he just named like a general manager for his company, I read so that he could actually be more hands-on with the vines yes. and not have to do all the back of the house, you know, paperwork as much. So mm-hmm. that, I mean, that says something when a person is is that dedicated to their craft. And he's been doing it for so long, you mm-hmm. think maybe he'd be ready to kick his feet up and and not, you know, have his hands in the dirt, literally. Right. Right. But he's, that's what he wants to do. Yeah, I mean, because we're just sitting here drinking, but this shit's hard work. You know, and it is hard work. And, you know, one of the things that you talked about, just about sort of like approaching the vineyard as an ecosystem and taking the time and the effort and the risk, quite frankly, to do it that way is, to me, not a very American approach to things. We're always looking for... Quick and easy. What's the shortcut, yep. right? What's going to make the most money for the least amount of investment? And I really see these winemakers that are going the organic route as people that are really like, when you drink their wine, you can really taste their love and their passion for what they're doing. It's kind of like when we talk about cooking, that you can really taste the love that goes into a meal that someone prepares for you, regardless of whether it's like a simple, just like a spaghetti or like a five course tasting dinner. You really can feel that sort of the essence of what went into it. And I think that with the wines that we drink a lot that are organically produced and just small and smaller production, I think that you can really taste that. Agreed. So 
Should we get into this bottle? Yeah. Yeah, Let's taste it. (laughs) So we've spent a lot of time talking about different properties of Syrah. How does how's this glass looking, Jules? Okay, like terms of color. You cannot see through to the other side of the glass. It is inky, like squid inky, like that dark, almost black red. And you can just start to see the red at the very bottom of the glass where it's a little, you know, it's Gets a little bit thinner. I'm not gonna lie, I'm feeling a little bit like the Evil Queen, and I kind of like it. Right it's now. kind, of, yeah, yeah. It's like that very um, Disney villain shade yes. of red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like goth red. It's the goth red. It's the goth Spicy. Yeah, Pe- I, that peppery, spicy. Pe- but also like some some baking spices. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting a little bit of like cinnamon, nutmeg. I'm getting a little bit almost like that earthy, like woody. Yeah, woody, not woodsy, but like actual wood, like when you have a fire and you have like maybe like a cedar wood or like the oak like oak wood and there's that very yeah there's definitely like proper like, earthy smell mm-hmm. not really super fruit forward on the mm-hmm. nose at all it's definitely more of those spices the pepper the woodiness and i don't think that woodiness is just from the oak aging either to be honest to me, this is a, it, it's, so this is the, the yoga teacher in me talking. It's like a very grounding. It Ooh. smells very grounded and like, grounding. I like that. Now, if I drink a whole bottle, I probably, probably won't be real grounded, but or, or <laughs> on the nose, or, on the nose. Or you'll be on the ground. Or the both, two. yeah. <laughs> and Q-Corpse pose. <laughs> and corpse. <laughs> Should we give it a taste? Let's give it a taste. Oh, that is nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a mature lady who knows what she likes and knows what she wants. I like her. Yep. She's fantastic. So She wears her caftans and her 1,000 bracelets up her arm, <sighs> and she is just dancing in her living room. She's fabulous. Okay. I like this woman. Yeah. she's. I'm going to go back to Jules's earlier comment about the roundhouse kick. You get that punch almost immediately in your mouth. It's just a full assault of in the best way I might mm-hmm. add of spice and peppercorn and but it it softens so quickly so this is a I think a wine that really takes your palate on a very quick pleasurable ride so you get that punch for me and then it almost immediately softens into this beautiful fruit forward full mouth flavor mm-hmm. and the texture is you know nice and velvety so what that does is it creates that lingering finish and it's in the finish that i get some of that herbaceousness and that that earthiness that really comes out that minerality starts to stand alone and it just leaves you with a lovely pleasant feeling in your mouth mm-hmm. i would agree that definitely i'm tasting more of the fruits that we're, we're, we're sort of like associating with a Syrah generally that we're not on the nose. But mm-hmm. then one of the things that I don't do very often when I'm drinking wine is actually then let it sit, right? And just not keep drinking the wine. But like you said, not taking another sip right away. Then I started to get sort of like the licorice. Like it's like that, that kind finish, of like. Yeah. There's like a, a slight sweetness to the finish. Yeah. But also a little bit of a bitterness too. Mm-hmm. And, In a good way. And I just took a second sip here, and that's when I was really able to pick up on the nice acidity in this wine. There is a brightness to it for me, despite being, you know, a heavy hitter. I'm getting almost like a little hint of like lemon zest in that transition period. So when you're 
when you're transitioning from that initial roundhouse kick into the fruit, I almost get like a little citrus bump, but I think that's because of the acid in the wine. Yeah, I'm not getting that, but you have a little more experience with this than I do, so. I'm a drunk. I'm going to trust you on that one. It's, no, but it's. It's a really complex glass is what I'm getting at. You know, you, mm-hmm. you're you feeling it because it is a full bodied wine and you're getting that full like mouth experience as you drink it. It's hitting your palate and all the different and frankly, all the right places so mm-hmm. that you're getting that bitterness. You're getting the little bit of sweetness. You're getting the earthiness and the minerality. Um, you're getting the fruit flavors. So it kind of takes you on a nice flavor roller coaster. And this definitely is not a porch pounder. No. Like, this is not something you can just, like, slug back. So why don't we talk a little bit about pairings? Because I do think that this one is definitely a wine that we need to pair with some food. But I do agree that this is a wine that you you do want to have with food. I would absolutely serve it with, like, a proper meal. Yes. What What would be your ideal meal for this wine? So... Brunch, light French toast. Oh my gosh, no, (laughs) definitely not. This for me is definitely kind of a winter's night or a cooler night meal type of wine. And there's this recipe that I've made a few times from New York Times cooking and it's a cognac beef stew. And it's really just this like rich, delicious stew of beef. And you serve it with potatoes, and it's just really delicious. And I think that this would go really well with that. I would complement it really well. But then I also think it'd be really good with a medium-rare filet mignon fresh off the grill. There you go. So beef stew is going to be one of my picks, too, because mm-hmm. that's something I make during the winter all the time. And I do mine with beef and pearl onions and heirloom carrots, potatoes, peas. And then I either put in like farro or barley mm-hmm. towards the end. And it just makes it like warm and rich and hearty, hearty with some yeah. crusty bread. And I think that that's a meal that could stand up to this wine. I think hearty is probably the description of the meal. Again, it yeah. has to be a hearty meal to go with. The other thing, though, that I would make to serve with this is like a coca vin. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I think that that would be f- fantastic. A little mm-hmm. nod to the French heritage yeah. of the Syrah grape and just kind of that that rich, especially now that we're moving into spring, that's still a rich meal, but it's not necessarily as heavy. As heavy. Yeah, yeah. as a stew. So that's something. And if I was going to do a more casual pairing, I would do like bison burgers mm-hmm. or something like that, you know. With for, a brioche bun. Yeah, maybe. like with a really nice bun, caramelized onions, slightly maybe more. a tomato jam. Yeah, tomato bacon jam. Mm-hmm. Maybe something like a manchego, like getting a little funky on the cheese end of stuff. Wait, are you one of those freaks who doesn't even like cheese on their burger? I don't like cheese. All right. This is something we'll get into probably at some point in the podcast, but Jules does not eat cheese. First the vegan and now the no cheeser. But I do have some caveats to the no cheese. I love Parmesan cheese. Okay, well. So what we figured out is it's it's the harder cheeses that I can I'll just get you a I can block handle. that you can gnaw in yes. the corner. <laughs> Fair. Okay, so, so. So it sounds like definitely something meaty, though, is what we're, we're yes, going with. we're here. both going with the meaty, the meaty food situation. What, where do you see yourself drinking? What are you doing? Okay, so for situation, I'm actually going to, we were talking about fashion, too. 
earlier today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with fashion. This is a wine I want to dress up for. Oh, you don't want to wear a tie-dye t-shirt. I, t- I mean, <laughs> I do, but I, I feel like it deserves some, like, hardcore respect. I want to put a nice outfit on, maybe something a little shiny, mm-hmm. you know, maybe something in velvet, I feel oh, like. Yeah. You know, I, I just, it should be celebrated a little bit, I think. So it's more, I want to put on some Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett records. Just sort of want to go, I want there to be candles everywhere. This is a sexy wine. I like that. So my sort of situation that I pictured was sitting in a big sort of like fat worn in leather armchair. Oh, like a smoking chair. You know, like a real real soft, like the leather's really just like softened. Like a men's club chair. Gentlemen's club. No. What are they called? Gentlemen's club is a strip club. Well, but we're talking about strong women. So it'd be like a women's. There you go. Yeah. By a roaring, like wood burning fire. And I can actually picture myself in a place that I've been to just outside of um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. There's a place called Los Poblanos Inn. It's a working farm, but they have a restaurant. And after dinner, they, they escorted us to the library. I love that. Where they gave us an after dinner drink and we sat by the fireplace. We were surrounded by books and it was (sighs) these like big leather chairs. So I immediately just sort of like pictured myself there with this situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I love that. So what are you being entertained by? Well, I talked about my love of Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and that sort of stuff. But I also think this is this is a special bottle. This is something I would want to share with people I care about and whose company I enjoy. And after whatever amazing dinner we have and the candles are going and the fire is rolling, I kind of want to, this is going to sound dumb, but I kind of want to pull out like, clue or monopoly mm. and just kind of enjoy enjoy the bottle take or charades some time, maybe charades yeah. celebrity charades, <laughs> charades. charades. <laughs> uh enjoy the bottle enjoy the whatever the game it is it's one of those because this is a bottle that you're absolutely right you're not going to pound through you're not going to rush through you're going to linger you're going to enjoy it and, and so, also let's be honest the price point yeah you know it makes it such that you want to enjoy it and share it with others who will also enjoy it. Yeah, I would say this is definitely like what I would qualify as a special occasion wine. Yes. So if you're planning like on hosting a birthday dinner for someone and you want to open up a really beautiful bottle with your main course or mm-hmm. if you're having an engagement party or something like that and you want to do a toast for a small group of friends or someone's got a new job, it's a celebratory bottle and it's a bottle that you definitely want to enjoy and linger over so mm-hmm. the whatever opportunity that affords you to, to do that this is a great pairing for that i think and you so i actually went the complete opposite direction oh i love this though i love that we've got like a different take on this so i was you know thinking about i i i tend to do the pairings in like this sort of like I can't separate the food from the situation from the entertainment. It's sort of like all rolls into one. Oh, you're you're normal. You're not a psychopath. Like you. <laughs> Got it. Cool, cool. So I kind of think, okay, I've had this like really like a hearty meal, and I'm feeling sort of like that sort of like haziness of like the food and the wine. And there's like one last glass to have, and I want to go and sit by that fire in my big leather chair and I want to just read a really because I do definitely find that when I'm in those situations where I'm playing games or being social I might not be as mindful of the wine that I'm drinking so this one I would be like 
Be right back, guys. I'm just going to go sit in the library for about a half an hour, finish off this wine, read the Night Circus, and I'll be right back. And then we'll play charades. Cool. <laughs> the difference between Jules and I is like she respects herself and others because one, she's given herself what she needs, respect for herself. Two, she respects others because unlike me, who would just not shut the fuck up about the wine at the dinner table <laughs> and just bore the living shit out of everybody <laughs> with, guess what I learned on my podcast? <laughs> just continued to talk about it while people Jules are- would just sit back and enjoy the wine. Maybe, maybe I have a few things I can learn here. <laughs> We'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Well, and whatever your your jam is, take some time to enjoy it. And I think this particular bottle is really a wine that exemplifies that idea that wine should be enjoyed and it should be celebrated and it should be fun um, and it should be engaging. So have at it. And so, Jules, if our listeners would like to purchase some 16600, what is their best avenue? For this particular bottle, the 2017 Syrah, they don't have it available online if you were to go to their website. However, I spoke with Sam and he said they do still have some of this in the tasting room. So you could call or email them directly and they would be able to hook you up with that. Get it while it's hot. Get it while you can. If you were interested in just sort of checking out 16600, you can go to their website where you'd be able to purchase wine. And the website is winery16600. That's winery, S-I-X-T-E-E-N, and then 600.com, 16600. Awesome. And there's a ton of information, too, on the website about vineyards and the areas and all of the wines that they produce. So definitely check them out, give them a follow, and read more about them. So yeah. for and our- their wine club is great too. They're Ooh. super flexible. The wine club is called Phil Sent Me. I love so, that. So um, the wine, <laughs> so it's again, fun, approachable. The wine club is great. Um, so yeah, go check them out. So for our next bottle, keep an eye on our Instagram feed. Jules is going on a top secret super mission across the pond across the pond in search of new resources i mean she's really going for a wedding or whatever but um (laughs) she's also i have given her a side branch (laughs) she's given me marching orders (laughs) so uh keep an eye on that instagram feed for our next bottle announcement and you can follow us on instagram at two girls and a great pod that's t-w-o girls and a great pod and if you have recommendations on what jules should be drinking while she's across the pond slide into those dms and let us know and we'll be sure to point her in the right direction but until next time salut, salut.